Are you using IFR? Philips IFR is the gold standard of resting indices and is supported by guidelines and clinical outcome data from over 4,500 patients. Including IFR co-registration in your lab will help you decide not just whether to treat, but where to treat. Learn more at philips.com backslash IFR. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast. This month, guest host by Caitlin Cox. Hello, and welcome to the August 2019 episode of Heart Sounds. I'm Caitlin Cox, TCTMD's news editor. This month, I'm your guest host, while our managing editor, Shelley Wood, is gearing up for the ESC Congress in Paris. Even from my home base here in Atlanta, I can tell fall is in the air. Summer is typically a slow news season for us at TCTMD, and for some reason this year it just sped by. Maybe that's because I got to dig into some in-depth features written by our reporters. So that you can hear more about how we craft those features, I'm departing from our usual Heart Sounds format. You'll get to know journalists Yael Maxwell and Marcus Banks better by the end of this episode. I can say firsthand that they're both very smart people who are quite fun as well. I bet you'll agree. First up is my interview with Yael Maxwell. I sat down with her to learn the inspiration behind her story called Structural Heart Hype as Fellowship Program's Mushroom, who's keeping tabs on quality and numbers. She also shared great takeaways for how the field can move forward. Here's what she had to say that day in the studio. You covered so much. How did you get started? How did you take the first step? Yeah, so this is something that's gone back actually a few years. If you go way to the beginning of kind of my interest in this, I've been doing running the Fellows Forum page now on TCTMD for almost five years. And I remember just getting started in this and talking to fellows and I'd say, what are your career goals? Where do you want to go into? It seemed like every single one of them was telling me they wanted to go into structural heart interventions, TAVR. It was so kind of this trendy, sexy field. And it just seemed like all of them wanted to go into it. And I was thinking, who doesn't want to go into it? It was kind of my mindset. And you know, flash forward a couple years, um, and our editor, uh, Shelley Wood, was talking with someone who I actually ended up interviewing for the story. Her name is Wawa Toon. She's a cardiologist based in Chinatown here in New York City. And she just started telling me about how hard it was when she graduated. She went in and did a structural heart intervention program in Detroit. She came out and I think was thinking that the job market was just gonna be full of options. And she really struggled to find a job. Um, she ultimately you know, did find this job here in New York and she's not doing structural interventions 100% of the time, but that's to be expected in this, in this market. It took me a while. I talked to a lot of people, mm-hmm. I ended up quoting 11 different people in the story, which I think is a record for me. But I was just getting people's stories and hearing about all these people who maybe, you know, five years ago were the ones that were saying, oh, yes, definitely doing TAVR. Now they're at this point where TAVR is still new, but it's not brand new. And Mm -hmm. the job market, it just seemed like was not there for all these people that wanted to do it. So that's kind of how I got started. Yes. Yeah. No, that's really incredible. So for you and doing all this, Were there any big surprises? I mean, what was something that you found that you didn't expect to see? This is such a personal issue. You know, these people spend so many years of their lives, Mm -hmm. often the prime of their lives, in training to get to this eventual goal of having a job as a cardiologist. And they're so passionate. And that's definitely something that just about everyone I spoke to said, 
it's all about your passion, follow your passion. Um, but there really does seem to be this struggle between passion and practicality. A lot of the things that we write about are so scientific in nature and it's very black and white. This happened because of this, this was proven, this statistic is this, but this issue is a lot more personal yeah. and human and these people have jobs, but they have lives and they have partners and they have children and they have families. And it just, it really just struck me, you know, how, how personal of an issue this is. Yeah. And that it was remarkable how many people talked to you about the struggle of it and the difficulty they had in finding jobs. Like that's something that I imagine is a lot hard to talk about. One of the other things that I thought was really interesting about your feature was that you took the time to really talk to leadership in the field about solutions. The main point of conversation that I saw was about ensuring quality to the programs. Because right now, there's nobody really watching over it, right? I mean, they could start anywhere. Correct, yeah. Yeah. So what's the solution that most people <laughs> fell on? Do they, is there a realistic way forward? Um, I think a lot of people wish that there was an easy solution. But the thing is, there are so many problems. It's so multifaceted between the um, number of programs that are, have proliferated. Their curriculum is so different, how they're funded. There's all these different little problems. Um, but I really think it's gotten to this point where people have been talking about this. This has been like a back alley sort of conversation. Um, and I think it's just starting to get to the point where leadership in the field are being like, okay, this is actually a problem that we need to address. We need to start talking about it. Um, and I know in, in conversations with some of the ACC leadership, it seems like they're doing that. They're working on a white paper that they hope to release within the next year. So it'll just be interesting to see how this kind of unfolds. Um, I think people that are going into the field now are a lot more realistic about the fact mm -hmm. that they might come out and not have the perfect job waiting for them. Is that gonna discourage people from going into this? I don't know, because again, yeah. it goes back to, you know, follow your passion. Um, but I, I do think there's just been a lot more conversations about this and it's still trendy, but it's also realistic or it's at least going, it seems to be going in that direction. Yeah. So we'll see. So in terms of the job market and supply being higher than demand, is this unique to structural? Is it different? Some of the conversation that I've seen on Twitter has actually referenced this. And um, I think people are in agreement that this is actually a problem that's widespread throughout the field of interventional cardiology, at least. Um, but it's definitely most recognizable in the structural field because of the position that it's in and the growth within it. Um, you know, it's not just Haver anymore, it's Mitra Club, LAA closure, all of these kinds of things. But then you've also got, you know, different fields now um, with with things like CTO, PCI, and people saying there needs to be a dedicated program to that. Okay, well, does that also need to be accredited? At what point do people need to take a look at that? And even in, in just what they call bread and butter interventional cardiology, I think there does need to maybe be a look and say, hey, like, do we actually need all of these people training for this as, as their need in our communities and in our country to have all these people training and, and is it a disservice to them to put them through all these years of training when they might come out and not have the job that they're trained for and yeah. then people say well if they're not doing the job that they trained for are they going to lose those skills so it's kind of this cyclical effect that I, I do think needs a lot more thoughtful discussion and conversation about it 
Have you gotten any feedback on this story on Twitter? Because I know you're pretty active on Twitter and especially with your community with Fellows Forum. Has there been any response? There has. There has. There's been a lot of pretty honest discussion about this. Uh, TCTMD ran a poll to see um, what people thought kind of the biggest issue within this larger problem is. And it seemed like the majority thought that we were having more grads than jobs. So again, I don't know exactly what the solution is for that, um, but I know there's been a lot of discussion about this and Twitter's a great place for this kind of discussion because I think it's the kind it, it's a forum for people to tell personal stories into. Um, I've gotten some private messages also from people that were thankful to see this issue come to light because they have recently faced similar things. And you know, people that are maybe just a year out of training aren't super excited to go publicly about how hard their job search was for them. Uh, so I really do appreciate the people that talked to me for this article. I appreciate the people that reached out to me um, after it was published. I think it's really it's a really interesting topic and I really enjoy talking with people about their kind of personal situations and seeing how we can fix them going forward. Yeah, yeah. That's well, it's really important that you're giving this much attention to this issue and you're uniquely positioned to do it. And I'm, I'm very impressed at the relationships you built. And I hope that, you know, our listeners here to the podcast, if you have any ideas going forward about what's needed in this area and fellowships, do reach out because Yael is always looking for ideas. Yeah. You can find <laughs> me on Twitter. I'm TCTMD underscore Yael. And I'm always happy to talk to anyone about any of these kind of issues. All right, signing off from this interview. Thanks for being here today. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Speaking of fellows, earlier this month, Shelley interviewed Marcus Banks, our fifth recipient of the Jason Kahn Fellowship in Medical Journalism. Marcus is currently completing his master's degree at NYU and spent the summer with us learning all things cardiology, as well as what makes for a great story. He applied those lessons in his feature, Wearables Under the Microscope, How New Tech Will Disrupt Patient-Physician Dynamics. Take it away, Shelley. All right, well, we're doing something special for this part of the August uh, edition of Heart Sounds. I'm sitting here with Marcus Banks, who is our Jason Kahn Journalism Fellow. Uh, Marcus is heading into the final semester of his degree at NYU's SHRP program. So it's been really a pleasure having you here, Marcus. I really enjoyed it. When I started at SHRP, I didn't really think I would be interested in trade journalism, but I really appreciate the, the chance to really dive into the stories and get to know the team here as well as the cardiologists I've talked to. It's been great. Have you enjoyed some of the day-to-day reporting? Maybe anything stand out for you? Yeah, there were a couple stories, actually, it turned out they were both from the UK, I just realized. One of the first things I did was about STEMI rates in women and men and how smoking has a worse effect on women in terms of STEMI likelihood. Right. But what was interesting in that study to me was that the authors claimed that if you quit smoking, your your risk of CV outcomes reduces so much to the, almost to the point as though you never have smoked at all. So they right. really made quite a strong claim for quitting smoking, which yeah. we already knew, but here was pretty never direct evidence. Yeah. And then the other one more recently was about salt intake levels. This is more of a public policy story where the British government changed its approach to salt reduction in packaged foods. And when they went to a more voluntary approach as opposed to more quasi-mandatory approach, the the salt levels still went down, but less. And that probably did lead to worse uh, cardiovascular outcomes. Yeah, that was a modeling study, I remember. And their idea was that that would have an impact down the road unless the UK took stricter measures. So I liked that one because it wasn't, I mean, 
TCTMD's bread and butter is the interventional, which is, of course, but I always like seeing the implications of that it's sort of on a public policy scale and of how public policy affects hard outcomes that then need to be intervened with. And of course, while you've been here, because there are two Canadians in the news team, you yes. have learned a bit of Canadiana. Uh, like I, you now know what a garburator is. Yeah, I call that a garbage disposal, but I, <laughs> I, I like loonies and toonies. I guess everybody knows that, so we didn't really talk about that too much. Yeah, I could, I could give you one as a parting gift, maybe. Yeah, I'd give me a great. loony. What I want to talk about, though, is your feature story, because you've spent the better part of your two-month fellowship looking into this story. You stumbled across the idea of writing about wearables in cardiovascular disease. This comes a couple months after we saw the results of the first Apple Heart study, which was at ACC before you started with us. But what was it about this topic that you thought would lend itself to a feature story? There was so much buzz after ACC and you know, in the lay press of overinflated claims about what Apple Watch would do, and Apple, of course, was marketing it. I wanted to see what do cardiologists actually think. Is it really a, the boon that the marketing might suggest, or do we need to know a lot more evidence? At, at a feature length, this, it, there's a chance to dive in in a way that you can't necessarily with the like the types of daily stories that we write. Yeah, because uh, Yael Maxwell covered this at ACC for us, and she did get quite a lot of reactions for that story, but it's not the same thing as letting the months go by for right. people to really digest some of the other implications, because as people told you, there's, there's different aspects of this. We still haven't seen hard data that wearing these will lead to actions that will reduce outcomes, but some of the people you spoke with had other reservations, and we're going to play a clip or two what did the naysayers have to say? What sure. are their concerns? One person who was probably the most uh, eloquent of the naysayers would be Venkatesh Murthy at the University of Michigan. And he really thinks that the, he thinks wearables could be great, but that there's very little efficacy, just like you said, that this is all just marketing. And he's and he's sort of, he feels like cardiology has a strong tradition of really relying on robust evidence before making any dramatic change. And that for some reason, these kinds of devices, people are just being sort of swept away by the excitement and the possibilities and the potential, but he thinks that the marketing has outstripped the evidence so far. Cardiology is built on um, decades, uh, maybe you could even say centuries of research and technologic advancements. It's a field that historically has has been relatively quick to uh, explore and 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 adopt, um, you know, uh, pharmacologic devices, diagnostics, imaging. So you know, it's not. It's not to me at all a surprise that there's energy and enthusiasm for investigating these things. The concern I have is just that, you know, the, the cardiology has also been a field that where we've asked for good evidence and we've had pretty high standards of evidence before we uh, push uh, for broad utilization of, of these new drugs, devices, technologies. And uh, my concern is that we're, we're maybe walking backwards a little bit on that. And in doing so, there's a lot of messages that are getting out to lay folks that may not be uh, fully accurate. There are, you know, websites that claim that some of these watches, for example, um, can detect uh, whether you're about to die. And um, right. there are people yeah. who claim that their lives have been saved by this. And I'm, I'm sure that careful epidemiologic study might identify, I mean, it's entirely possible that they can identify uh, that there is a life-saving effect, but we haven't yet obtained that kind of data. And, and that problem leads to people using it maybe in, inefficiently, inappropriately. It can drive costs. It can drive downstream testing. And we don't really know uh, where the balance of benefit is.
So I'm, I'm hoping that all of our readers will go and check out Marcus's full story, which ran earlier this month. There's definitely some aspects to it that I hadn't thought of. And one of those was the idea of what on earth will happen with all of this data. If everybody is wearing these devices and they're sending that data to some sort of repository, how will that trickle down to reach cardiologists and other practitioners to do sort of actionable changes in a person's care? So tell me a bit about that. How did you get interested in that? One of the first people I spoke to was a cardiologist in Ireland, Patty Barrett, who really expressed data is only good if you can use it. And he really felt that the EHR isn't ready to ingest all of this inbound data. But really, the systems have to evolve or or there will be limited, there will be lots of opportunity lost, assuming that we find efficacy in the first place. Sure, which is a big assumption. Okay. And then on the other side, though, people say the data is the patient's anyway, we shouldn't put the EHR. The data belongs to the patient. patient. Yeah. We should be thinking in terms of a personal health record, a patient health record, not an EHR in the first place. And so that's another, it's like the, uh, the tail wagging the dog or something. And, and so, yeah, maybe the EHR is not appropriate, but that, that means we just need to use something besides Gotta the EHR. Got to find something else. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the other thing I just want to pick out of the feature that I also thought was interesting is the idea of this paradigm shift in terms of the physician-patient relationship. And we've already heard a lot about this. We've done stories about this in the past, but this idea that as patients come to have control over a lot of their own data and have the ability to sort of take personal actions on that, that that will change the way they interact with physicians. Give our audience a little bit of a, a sense of what that what people said about that. So uh, some people are very excited by that. They, they, they like it when the patient can come in and do almost all of the diagnosis themselves because, <laughs> because they've, and not in a lazy sense, but like they, they've done the groundwork. And in one case, one story we talk about, a woman really knew something was wrong from her, the data from her watch, but a lot of her physicians were saying, oh, that's just anxiety. Mm. Uh, but, but in fact, it turned out that it was, it was more severe. On the other hand, there's the case, the potential for the worried well. You'll get an alert, especially if you're a young, healthy person and you're at the gym, and so your heart rate very temporarily skyrockets, and now the watch gives you an alert. You Actually, nothing is wrong with you at all, but you rush off to the doctor. And then, right. and now some people would say, well, we give blood pressure cuffs to people, and we don't worry about that. Other people would say, well, well we only give blood pressure cuffs to people who really need them. And so it go, whereas anybody can buy the watch. Right. This is something we it. did hear a lot about when yeah. the, the first results came out. So I think what we'll do, though, is finish, because um, you did speak to some people who were a little more enthusiastic about this. Yes. So set that up for us. So uh, Leslie Saxon at the University of Southern California Center for Body Computing, is a, she thinks that, she says she tells all of her patients to get a watch, that because they have the data in real time at their disposal, when they t- call her, they really need to talk, and that the quality of conversations has improved, and she doesn't just have to send people to the ER and wait to hear back. So she's a true enthusiast. So there really are the, pol- the polar spectrum, and I think hopefully the feature brings that out for our readers. Okay, let's give a listen to Saxon very handy to be able to have a patient be able to get an EKG from their watch and send it to me, right? Or just start to learn. So suddenly I have a patient base where I can say to someone, you know, you look at something very, one of the, one of the common problems that we face is physicians and patients working against disease, drug adherence, right? Side effects, whatever. So if I start a drug, I can now say to a patient that acts on heart rate or rhythm, right? I can say to a patient, okay, you tell me if you have a side effect. You can track your EKG. You can send them to me. We know when we started it. We can start to look at your heart rates. If your heart rate's reduced on this, how it makes you feel. People respond incredibly favorably to that. And that just helps shortcut and personalize uh, disease management schemes and allows me to kind of practice at the top of my license and not spend a lot of my time on other stuff because the patient is also being educated and tracking themselves and much more favorably contributing to their care. So it drives engagement and education on the patient side. 
Okay, Marcus. Well, thanks so much for telling us about your feature, and thanks so much for being such a pleasure to work with these past couple of months. It's been great getting to know you. I feel the same. Thank you so much, Shelley. And this isn't it for Marcus. You'll see him again. He's going to be back and helping us out at TCT in September. So uh, watch for more Marcus then. As this episode of Heart Sounds goes live, Shelley, along with Yael, Todd Neal, and Michael Reardon are packing their bags for the upcoming ESC Congress in Paris. You'll hear all about ESC in the September edition of this podcast, but let me tip you off about some of the trials we'll be looking for as the meeting picks up steam on Sunday. On the interventional side, you have the complete trial looking at culprit and non-culprit revascularization in the setting of STEMI, as well as two-year results from MITRA-FR. That's the controversial trial on MitraClip and functional MR that turned up results that conflicted with the positive news from COAPT. Elsewhere at the ESC hotline sessions, you'll get 16-year results from Denami 2, 10-year results from Syntaxes, and 5-year results from Clarify, plus the latest population health analyses from the Pure Cohort and much more. Check out TCTMD.com starting this Saturday, August 31st for breaking news from ESC. In September, of course, the whole team will be on the ground at TCT in San Francisco. So much news, so little time. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at TCTMD underscore Caitlin and keep on reading. If we cross paths, do make sure to say hi. I'd love to meet you in person. That's it for now. Thanks for listening.